Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. So scratch any so-called monotheistic religion, and you're going to find a lot of intermediary, supernatural, quasi-divinities. And I, perhaps heretically, would put saints into that category. To get to be a saint, one has to posthumously demonstrate some kind of supernatural activity, something that could be classified as a miracle. People love saints. They can approach saints. You can go look at a saint's body. You can go look at a saint's skull. There's sort of part of the material evidence of some kind of religious activity in the world. And of course, of saintliness, uh, of beatification. These are all good things, right? We're gonna talk about the complicated world of saints and sainthood after this news. As that music might suggest to you, today we are talking about saints. Um, and specifically, when we say saints in this context, we mean essentially the Roman Catholic kind of saint, uh, the beatified and canonized type of saint. Within the Protestant tradition, saints, it's a much more amorphous term and kind of a more small d democratic term within the world of sort of Calvinist and going forward theology. A saint is any person who has been elected by God for eternal life, anybody upon whom the irresistible grace of God has been conferred. <clears throat> so it doesn't really, it's not the kind of hierarchy that we're talking about here. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, what a saint is. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, people who may be right on the cusp of becoming saints, including one with strong local connections to where I'm sitting, a saint from Waterbury, Connecticut. Um, we'll also talk about the way in which uh, having saints uh, from a particular locale kind of affects the identity and maybe even the economy uh, of that locale. So a lot to talk about here. Let's get going. Uh, we're going to start off with uh, Teresa Berger. Uh, am I saying your last name right? How do you say it? How do you, I'm, I bet I said your entire name wrong. Say your name for me. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Yes, it to does. Me. It matters to me. <laughs> so in German, I would say Teresa Berger, but that's how it for all right. People so here. I can do that. So okay. so here we go. Uh, professor of liturgical studies and Catholic theology at Yale Div School. Um, so, so much to talk about. But yeah, I think we maybe need to begin uh, with the whole notion uh, of uh, a saint. Uh, and it's not it's, it's tough probably to find a definition that really fits uh, all the occasions uh, of saints. But but maybe give us your working hypothesis. Yes, gladly. Maybe I will start with where you started, actually, to say that the Catholic Church is not unfamiliar with the broader understanding of sainthood that you sketched at the beginning. Uh, for example, the Second Vatican Council called every Catholic 
to a path of holiness. So with that said, uh, the Catholic Church does have a peculiar process of identifying uh, particularly compelling examples of the saintly life. And when I think of people in that category, I think of faithful people who have responded to God's call in their life in very deep and um, startlingly faithful ways. And there are a million different uh, ways of responding to God's call, but essentially you are looking for what is the specific call in your life and have you responded to that to the fullest of, of your possibilities. Right. And then there's a formalized process by which this goes forward. We could talk a little bit about that. But before we do that, just kind of from the perspective of theory, one could wonder why there would be a formalized process, why there would be a necessity of deciding that one person is a saint uh, whose name should eternally be preceded by the term saint and that another person isn't. Um, and so let me give you my pet theory and you can just shoot it out, <laughs> shoot it out of the sky. Um, I, I sort of believe that to a certain degree, humans remain a little bit polytheistic. You know, I mean, the Abrahamic re re religions came in with uh, delivering kind of a, a new world of monotheism. Uh, most of what it preceded was polytheistic or in some cases pantheistic. And there's a way in which I think we crave it. We crave the idea of somebody of a slightly more human scale than, say, the Trinity, um, somebody that we can relate to who, who amounts to be who amounts to being a stepping stone up to some of those higher echelons. So yeah, react to that. <laughs> um, I think I will simply say that I leave the sort of psychological foundation <laughs> you are trying to lay for that to mm. to you. I think the theological foundation, at least from the Catholic point of view, uh, would be that um, we are called and always live in communion with other faithful Christians. Some of these have gone on before, but we continue to be in communion with them, asking them for prayers, thinking of them, celebrating them. Um, and at some point when the church became uh, more numerous than in the early years, it became clear that there were some of these saints that should really be known more globally than the local devotions to uh, saintly figures. Uh, permitted. If you think of the Catholic Church right now, it's it has 1.3 billion human beings around the globe. And there are some saints that are very local. We'll hear about the one from Waterbury soon, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are others that are held um, in esteem around the globe. And in fact, also culturally think of St. Francis of Assisi. But in order for that to happen, you really need a process of lifting up a particular life for everybody to, um, to be able to see that life and, um, 
and become a friend of that particular saint. So that's what the process, I think, ultimately is supposed to achieve. Right. And when we turn to uh, Father McGivney, which we will in just a second, uh, we'll get to see a little bit about how this process works. But even before we do that, it is interesting the degree to which, as you're suggesting, I think, that it often does start locally, right? You have people saying, wow, we've got somebody here in Milan, you know, who's just pretty special and obviously a person of exemplary virtue and holiness. Um, We like to have that person considered uh, for the process of sainthood, sainthood, it often arises from from local people supporting someone, typically someone who is no longer a, alive. It has to be hmm. um, a, a person who has died. You can never um, request to open a process of canonization for someone still alive. And the rule is, the person needs to have been dead for at least five years, but that can be waived by the Pope. But you're absolutely right, the process begins locally at the grassroots and then moves up in essentially four steps to the Vatican. But that has also only been the case in the last thousand years or so. Um, Making saints before then uh, was a much more local affair in any case. And, and there is a sense that although there is a hard and fast four-step process, as you're suggesting, there's also, you know, we often say every rule has an exception. There are ways in which it's not that hard and fast. The Pope has a tremendous amount of latitude, as popes tend to have. Uh, so, for example, that there there's a rule that there has to be uh, something that could be called a miracle to get you to the process of beatification, right? But then there has to, supposedly has to be a, a second one after that, except the Pope can, and I think recently has, can waive that requirement and say, no, this is good enough. Yes, the Pope can waive that requirement. Um, And um, miracles can be dispensed with if the person has died as a martyr of his or her faith. So, yes, there are various, um, let's say, shortcuts. Mm. but they don't, they don't happen that often. Right. And, and so we should say a little bit more. The, the process includes a, an actual investigation by the Vatican. I was surprised to hear or to read um, that, um, you know, a term that an awful lot of people are, are very familiar with, um, advocatus diaboli uh, in Latin, <laughs> uh, but devil's advocate, which is a term we just sling around all the time these days for somebody kind of taking the opposing point of view uh, right. to, to something. That actually comes from this process, correct? Yes. and But unfortunately, that office, well, I say unfortunately, I think that person had an important role, but that office no longer exists. And so say say a little bit more about what the four steps are. Okay. Um, Now, and I'm talking about um, recent times, um, a process would begin by a local bishop um, lifting up a particular person in New York, it is currently um, Dorothy Day and some others, and suggesting to the Vatican that um, a process of canonization be opened. If the Vatican agrees that human being is declared a servant of God, 
there are lots of technical terms in this process because it's it's it, it's a historic and quaint in a sense process. Um, and at that point, the diocese, the local church gathers <laughs> information. In Dorothy Day's case, it was a ton of information because witnesses have to be interviewed, both pro and con the particular candidate, and all writings have to be gathered, published and unpublished. Uh, then that is sent to uh, Rome, um, that opens um, a, a commission to study uh, this case, and then declares at some point, and this is the second step, that the particular candidate has led a holy life. The technical term is that they have lived heroic virtues. And at that point, the um, candidate becomes venerable, technical term again. And then we sit and wait for miracles to happen. And unless they are dispensed with a first miracle, if it is accepted, it needs to be investigated. And the investigation is ruthless. Um, so it needs to be investigated if it is accepted and accepted as having happened because this particular human being was, this particular saint to be was prayed to. Then the person becomes beatified and with the next miracle, the person becomes canonized and officially um, a saint in the Catholic church. I would quickly say that we have lots more saints than the ones we know of who have made it through that um, arduous process, which is why we have a feast of all saints on November 1 that gathers in all the ones that the Vatican might have missed, hmm. uh, who never made it through the ranks, but are definitely saints of God. Right. And and we'll talk a little bit about this, I think, maybe in the B segment, too. And it certainly as you go through, say, Central America, you're going to encounter Central America, I think, didn't get its first saint until 2002, uh, some, uh, uh, a saint from Guatemala. But there are a lot of folk saints. Um, that's the term yeah. uh, for them, the people who seem to have exhibited a lot of these same qualities. Well, let's weave into this conversation, Father Jim Sullivan, uh, the rector uh, of the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception in Waterbury. Uh, we said at the outset... Uh, that there is a candidate for sainthood uh, from Waterbury. Uh, his name is Father McGivney. Uh, and uh, Father Jim Sullivan, uh, tell us a, a little bit more uh, about this remarkable person. Uh, thank you, Colin. Yes, uh, Father McGivney was born in, in Waterbury, uh, 1852, and uh, lived his life there, went to school there, worshipped there, at the, the, actually at the church where I happened to be the privilege of being the rector, the, the Immaculate Conception. And um, obviously, throughout his life, grew in virtue, came, uh, was born into a very devout family, and then uh, eventually became a priest. And as we all know, was a, his first assignment was in New Haven, Connecticut, and had a great love for the poor, for the widow, the orphan, the needy, uh, the, the worker, uh, and eventually founded the Knights of Columbus. And uh, that's, that's his greatest legacy, of course. But his reason for being considered canonized a saint, and the reason he was beatified was because of his, what was so beautifully said about his heroic virtue and his uh, his living out of the gospel of Christ. 
And so explain how far along in the in the pipeline, so to speak, uh, Father Michael McGivney is at this point. So back in 1997, the cause was opened by Archbishop Cronin, and then he was declared venerable a number of years later on March 15th of 2008. And of course, recently with the, the miracle of a, a young boy by the name of Michael Shackles uh, from Tennessee, who uh, was had no chance of survival from what's called fetal high drops. I'm, I'm not a doctor in any way, but Michael, through the intercession of uh, Father McGivney and prayers by his parents and others, was, was born, is now eight years old. So Father McGivney, because of that miracle, was declared blessed just recently on October 3rd, 31st, uh, 2020 at the Cathedral in Hartford. And now, of course, the faithful and many others uh, are praying for his uh, future canonization. Um, you know, that, that sort of raises a question, too. So, um, it, you know, this this the, the ceremony that you just described, I think the date that you, you just said is during the pandemic. It must be rather difficult to do. It's difficult to do everything during the pandemic. We can just start there. Uh, I would imagine doing this process is a little complicated. That's correct. I mean, there were there was literally, I think, 100 of us was which was the limit at the at the cathedral. We were spread out all over the place. But uh, actually, I, I think with the process itself, with all the technology that we have today and so many people being able to work out of their homes and so the actual process, I think, was was probably somewhat normal. But getting together and being together. Yes, that was the difficulty. But it shortly after the miracle uh, was uh, declared in May of 2020, just a number of months later is when we, we had the actual ceremony in Hartford. It was a great day, obviously, for, for Waterbury, for New Haven, for the, city of, for the uh, Connecticut, the Archdiocese of Hartford, but really for the entire nation and, and really ultimately for the world. Now, um, uh, I understand that actually, I think your mother actually had a vision connected to all this. Yes, on, on August 14th, which is Father McGivney's death day at the age of, uh, age of 38 and uh, 18, uh, 1890, he was in Thomason, Connecticut. Uh, I was a building contractor for 25 years before becoming a priest, and I lived right near that church. So it was, it was actually my parish. I'm from Waterbury, but actually moved to the next town, Thomaston. And my mother was a very faithful woman. She went to church one day with my sister on August 14th and my three nieces, and they were the only ones in church, the, the sunlight coming in through the beautiful stained glass windows. And all of a sudden, my mother just looks to the right, and my nieces and my sister see her looking as if she's following someone, and she was indeed. So this young man walks up to the altar, and my nieces and my sister say to my mom, Mom, what are you, what are you looking at? She says, I'm, I'm looking at the young priest. Don't you see him? He's smiling at me. And sure enough, they went back out to the car, and the, and the, the book that was written a number of years ago by Douglas Brink, Brinkley and Julie Fenster called Parish Priest, The Life of Father McGivney, his, his image is on the front. And my sister says uh, to my mom, Mom, by, by, by any chance, is, is that who you saw? And my mother, in all deliberation, she was 83, but she was still very much, very much together. She died a few years later. She said, that's who I saw. Now, my mother planted flowers at the grave of Father McGivney's parents for 10 years in Waterbury, where Father McGivney was laid to rest for 92 years. My mom planted flowers there, took care of the grave. And I just feel that Father McGivney kind of granted my mom a, a little miracle, a little vision. I know if I was in heaven, I knew someone was planting flowers at my parents' grave. I'd like to do something nice. And I honestly think that that's what happened. It was a very profound day on, on his feast day, August 14th. A number of years ago, a little, a little miracle, I think, in a small way, to my mom. So, when you 
Close your eyes now, Father Jim, and picture a a post-canonization world, particularly that world unfolding in Waterbury. How how do you see that? How what, what do you see when you close your eyes and picture that? How how does the world of Waterbury, the world where uh, Father McGivney's grave is, uh, the basilica? We'll get into Holy Land in just a second because it really obviously would be kind of a natural uh, mm-hmm. matchup with all this. How, how does that world look? That looks beautiful. I, I think in Waterbury there's a great devotion to Father McGivney. We have a very active Knights of Columbus, but beyond that. There's just a spirit in the city, a great love for him. Our, our parish is, it's really, it's kind of, it's flourishing. And I think, I, I think the faith life of people in Waterbury and beyond are really just, we're hungry, partly because of the pandemic, just partly because of the world today. I think people are just reaching out for something more, living for something more, uh, wanting more of, of who created us, God himself. And I, I think the miracles are just about to happen. Waterbury at one time was considered the most Catholic city in the country per capita, obviously Philadelphia, Baltimore, Chicago, New York, much more, but it was Waterbury per capita that had the most Catholics. You know, sometimes we look in the past, you know, the best is behind us. I always say maybe the best is yet to come. Maybe something beautiful is about to happen and maybe it could be right here in New Haven and Waterbury where miracles again begin to happen because we all want it. We're created for that. We want more, not less. And so I, I just think Father McGivney is bringing so much enthusiasm and desire and love for, the, for humanity, but also obviously for God, God himself. And it's just, I'm, I'm pinching myself actually thinking I'm the pastor of his church, you know, and I'm from Waterbury. So it's, it's beautiful for me, but well beyond me just for, for so many. So let's fold uh, Teresa back into this conversation, uh, and and I wanted to ask you. I mean, for example, um, in Kildare, Ireland, there's the so-called Well of Saint Bridget. I mean, that's a place people go. People go out of their way. Uh, I mean, I could give other examples uh, uh, easily, uh, and but but one of the aspects uh, of a local saint is that it, a local saint can be a global draw. People want to come there. Teresa, maybe you can say a little bit more about that. <laughs> I think there are saints in the Catholic tradition that have jumped across ecclesial boundaries, church boundaries. So I mentioned uh, uh, St. Francis earlier. Um, Gardeners love him, whether they are Catholic or not, and you'll find statues of him uh, in in many gardens. Um, A saint from my own region of Central Europe, Hildegard of Bingen, has had a meteoric rise in the last 50, 60, 70 years in oh, a host of um, subcultures, new age, um, healing crystals, uh, monastic cookbooks, you name it. Um, so I think there is a, a hunger, and this goes back to your what I called psychologizing at, at the mm-hmm. beginning. Sure, there is a hunger for exemplary, well-lived lives. And some of the Catholic saints fit with contemporary visions of um, a well-lived, compelling life. 
others would defy it. Um, but that's the beauty of the communion of saints, the, the sheer diversity of lives that are patterns that evidence patterns of holiness. So, um, Father Jim, you know, when we think about that post-canonization world, um, I mean, it is possible that your decades as a building contractor may come into play because there is, if you're going west, if you look up to your left, uh, there is this very uh, interesting area called Holy Land, which closed and then I think kind of semi-reopened. But it, it seems maybe you can sort of explain to people what's sitting up there. But but in the event that this really became a place of convergence for the faithful, you'd have to be crazy not to want to use this somehow. Absolutely, Colin. Yeah, so, so Holy Land USA has a 56-foot cross on the top that was put there in the 1950s and rebuilt in 2013. And it's uh, from the highway where 225,000 cars pass every week. It's really a Waterbury landmark. But from the top of that, you can see all of Father McGivney's life, essentially the whole city, where he was born, where he worshipped, where he was laid to rest for 92 years before his body was moved to uh, New Haven. So Holy Land, I believe, will be in the mix in some very significant way. If he is canonized a saint, Waterbury will become a place of pilgrimage, as will New Haven. Uh, one thing we're doing at the Basilica, we're restoring the entire church basement, and we're renaming it the Blessed Michael McGivney Parish Center. So we're well on our way with that. And Whether he's canonized or not, or not I believe this still will be a, a place of pilgrimage for the fact he's declared blessed. But Holy Land, yes, it's an absolutely beautiful, stunning place, uh, a holy place in the midst of a city that's filled with traffic and noise. There's this respite on top of a mountain. God often speaks on mountains. And I think this is one mountain in Waterbury that will... Um, Will, will be a great light uh, to the city uh, and beyond. Yeah, may may still need a little sprucing up, but but you're oh. the, you're the man for you're the man <laughs> for that. You're a building contractor, <laughs> yes, uh, for sure. a priest who can operate heavy equipment. You're going to be in demand. So I've got uh, some dreams. Yeah. <laughs> so um, one last question for you, Teresa. So uh, the last time I was in maybe maybe the only time I was in Lucca, Italy, uh, I visited uh, Santa Zita. Uh, she is um, one of the incorruptibles, so to speak, bodies of Catholic saints that were found to miraculously not deteriorate. But I also found out that she was the saint of lost keys. So could you explain that process? I mean, it seems to be a less formal process by which you become the saint of firefighters or the saint of lost keys. It is somewhat less organized. Um, I actually have a book uh, that you can go to for whatever problem you have and look up the saint that is suggested as um, a good saint to pray with for that uh, problem. But there is also a process in, in the Vatican to officially um, label a saint as a patron saint for this, that, and the other. Mm. So one of the most recent ones was Saint Isidore of Sevilla, who became the patron saint of the internet. Uh, and about 50 years ago, 60, 70 years ago, St. Clare of Assisi was named the patron saint of television. So there are more official and less official um, causes that um, get connected with saints. And typically it has to do with something in their life that um, makes people think they are particularly sympathetic to specific causes. 
All right, we need to stop there, but this is fascinating. We have so much more to tell you. Uh, Father Jim Sullivan, Rector of the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception in Waterbury, uh, Teresa Berger, uh, Professor of Liturgical Studies and Catholic Theology at, at Yale Divinity School. Let's take a break. We'll come back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. I had skin like leather and a diamond hard look of a cold. All right, we had to get the boss involved here somehow. Uh, let's talk to another boss, though. Uh, Rachel McCleary is a lecturer in the economics department at Harvard University. I've heard of there. Uh, and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Studies the political economy of religion. Um, first of all, welcome to our conversation. Thank you, Colin. Thank you very much. So, you know, as Teresa, I think, was uh, kind of emphasizing in the initial uh, segment, this is a... Uh, 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 sacred process, a holy process, uh, maybe not subject to psychologizing and, or analyzing the economics of it, except that it kind of is, too. And it's it's not that orderly or regular a process. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my sense is that Pope John Paul II and now Saint Fra- uh, Pope Francis, uh, they really like getting saints in the pipeline, right? They really feel as though um, more saints uh, are merrier. Uh, absolutely. Um, And this is in large part due to the increase in competition with uh, Protestantism, particularly Pentecostalism, different forms of Pentecostalism, evangelicalism. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and I would also think, I mean, I think you might have heard me say in the, in the first segment, and once again, you know way more about this than I do, but I think, for example, Central Central America didn't get a saint, didn't get its first saint until like, like 2002. But really, when you look at that, when you look at how fertile uh, Central America would be uh, or is for Catholicism at a time when it's struggling to compete in other places, and maybe even there, uh, it makes sense that Central America would be getting some saints, which I understand they are. Right. And uh, like, for example, France has just beatified within the last two years, 14 individuals in Central America, uh, 10 in Guatemala and four in El Salvador. Um, But but I think the context in which we have to think about this is um, at the turn of at the beginning of 1900s, the uh, Pentecostalism came up and they were poor. They weren't rich like the mainline denominations. And so they couldn't go to China. They couldn't go to India. So where did they go? They went to Central America and Latin America. And that's where they went with their brand of Protestantism. So what the Catholic Church thought was a Catholic continent, namely Latin America, didn't remain Catholic. Um, In came these Protestant, these Pentecostals, and they started garnering converts from Catholicism. And in a sense, I think it crept up on the Catholic Church. And the reason I say that is because the liberal reforms in the late 1800s throughout uh, former Spanish colonies basically sought to separate the church from the state, to set up a secular state. So in the process, the Catholic Church, which basically had a dominant position in these countries, lost that. It also lost its financial support. And along with it, you had priests leaving. You had clergy leaving the region and not coming back. This also dovetails with um, the 60s, you know, more, more young men and women not choosing religious careers. Um, so finally, when Pope John Paul becomes Pope, uh, he kind of sets off the alarm. The, the Catholic bishops did set off the alarm around 1955, but nothing was really done until uh, John Paul became Pope. Right. So, um, and, and I think there's kind of a sense, or there can be kind of a sense, that just as nature abhors a vacuum, uh, uh, that communities of faithful people or religiously inclined people may abhor a vacuum of this kind uh, of personage. There's a way in which, uh, I mean, there's a term, for example, um, cultus within the world of saints, which is refers to public devotion to a saint. Uh, sainthood kind of authorizes that kind of activity, authorizes it for Catholics throughout the world. Um, but uh, it almost seems as though uh, Pope John Paul II and maybe Francis as well were sort of saying, well, if we don't do this, you know, th- then there are going to be cultuses, culti, um, but they're not going to be for our people. They're either going to be for folk saints who, who aren't necessarily, you know, our people, or, as you suggest, Protestant uh, Protestant religions, Protestant religious figures. If you don't do this, if you don't plant this seed, then other seeds get in there and sprout. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So what happens with the liberal reforms, uh, if you think about the Mexican Revolution and uh you know, how that led to secularization, you know, the separation of church and state. You think of the liberal reforms in Latin America and also Europe. You have to think about that, um, how that led to a, a type of secularism. 
And uh, so what happens then is that the indigenous, what we might call the indigenous beliefs and their systems begin to also be practiced and they take on a more important role within society. Um, but, I, but I also think that's also an incorrect way to view things because you do have um, what you might want to call the elites of these former Spanish colonies. You have elites in any society that are well-educated that tend to be more blue blood, so to speak, um, more economically well-off. And so what happens to them is that they do secularize. Um, they basically don't take on anything. And so when Protestantism comes in, it forces them to think about it. So if you think about what happened with Martin Luther, um, the Council of Trent uh, was definitely, the third session was a response to uh, indulgences and uh, saints, and it reaffirmed that in the Catholic Church. So, so competition, on our view, is very healthy for religion. You want competition. You don't want people to become lethargic and just to take it for granted that it's there. Uh, on the other hand, or maybe not on the other hand, um, there's a way in which um, the, the right kind of saint, a certain kind of saint, kind of attracts everybody. Uh, I, I think I mentioned uh, in the previous segment St. Bridget uh, of Ireland. Uh, and, I mean, the, 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 the nuns, the Bridgetine Order, uh, who run the site there in Kildare say, people are coming in groups from all around the world, interfaith groups, no faith groups, goddess groups, Buddhist monks, all sorts of people. So from the point of view of the site itself, that's probably really good news. But from the point of view of orthodoxy, there's a way in which, I, I don't know, is, is that kind of theological rainbow either welcome or adaptive for the Catholic Church? Well, you know, when, when you speak of somebody like that, I think of uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Mm -hmm. She has a universal appeal, but there, there's also something within the Catholic Church that is part of this process that when you become beatified, uh, you can only have a local veneration. Uh, you can't go beyond the local region. So for example, Francis beatified uh, 10 martyrs of El Quiche in Guatemala. Uh, they cannot worship beyond that. People may have heard of them and come, come visit them, hmm. but that really is not what the church is doing. When they become canonized, then they become venerated by the universal Catholic Church. They become a saint for everybody. And that's when it, it makes this major shift. So you have to think of John Paul as realizing that before, prior to him being Pope, and even during his being Pope, it took a long time to become beatified. You know, it uh, hundreds of years in some instances. So what he does is he changes the rules. He basically says, we're going to cut it down to one miracle at each stage. We're going to cut it from 50 years to five years. And we're going to speed up the process. And in fact, that's what he does. So when he passes away and Benedict XVI comes into office, there's this backlog of beatifieds that are waiting, waiting in this process. There's also a backlog of venerables. And so you, you see the system kind of getting built up. And so Benedict has more canonizations. He just takes off with the canonization process, but he also speeds up the beatifications. The same thing happens with Francis. Francis, not so much, much with canonizations. But 
as you mentioned in the earlier segment, a pope can pick and choose. A pope has a certain theological um, perspective about what he wants to convey about the universal Catholic church. And so this is part of what um, is going on, that, that, that the pope picks some dimension that he wants to promote. So Francis, being an Argentine, is definitely promoting Latin America as part of his agenda. He wants to make it available to everybody. Yeah. So, uh, Rachel uh, McClary, before we go, uh, my time's a little bit limited here, but I, I think it would be remiss if we didn't at least mention Dorothy Day, uh, somebody else who's kind of in the pipeline, the founder of the Catholic Workers Movement. Uh, I don't know what the American Enterprise Institute thinks about having a socialist saint, but but maybe you can you can talk about um, about that particular uh, candidacy and, and what it might mean. So that is a really interesting candidacy. She is compared to St. Augustine of Hippo, uh, who sinned, had, you know, had a child out of wedlock, um, committed all these egregious sins before he finally saw the true path. And Dorothy Day has been compared to him. And frankly, I think, I think it's, it's an interesting choice. I think for the modern day, contemporary day, it's a good choice. Being a perfect saint from childhood, being precocious from the age of five all the way to when you pass away like Teresa de Avila isn't the model. That, that's a very, very hard model to follow. Great points. And, and Rachel McClary, thank you so much for your time today. Lecturer in Economics uh, Department at Harvard University, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, and we're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to you about somebody who has often been... I don't know, campaigned for by her followers, uh, but who is never going to be a saint. Uh, I feel that I, uh, I am, I'm confident in saying that. So you'll meet Veronica Lucan, at least apostrophically, after this. All right, uh, time to say some thank yous. Uh, we had help today from Sarah Gasparato, uh, the saint of internships. Visit the Gasparato Grotto. Uh, Katie Zalarski, a nice Catholic girl, is the saint of storytelling and uh, has uh, substituted today, uh, filled the chair of Cat Pastor as technical producer. Lily Tyson is the saint of getting stuff done, uh, and she is the producer of this episode. Now joining us is Joseph Laycock, professor of religious studies at Texas State University. He's the author of The Seer of Bayside, Veronica Lucan and the struggle to define Catholicism, among other books. Let me just quickly interject that sometime around 1978 or so, uh, I was the religion editor uh, of a uh, large daily newspaper, and I would be occasionally visited by people wearing blue berets. Uh, and not only that, but in the pages of the newspaper, there was every week uh, an ad called, an advertisement called, Why Do the Heathen Rage? Uh, and um, we also had to sort of lay things out kind of around this big, blocky, uh, texty thing. And it was, in fact, issued by the followers, followers uh, of Veronica Lucan. It included her visions and prophecies that were uh, her supposedly channeling uh, the Virgin Mary. Uh, and so I'm now about to hand the baton off to the person who really knows about this. But it's dear to my heart because of my past association. So, Joseph Laycock, tell us a little bit more about this Catholic housewife uh, from Basel. 
East Side, Queens, New York. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, And I was also curious how anybody knew about Veronica Lucan. So that story kind of helps me understand uh, how I got here. Uh, So Veronica Lucan, as you mentioned, she was a Catholic uh, housewife living in Bayside, Queens, Um, poor mother of five um, by everyone who knew her personally, said she was a really um, sweet uh, woman. Uh, and she began having mystical experiences after Bobby Kennedy uh, was assassinated. So as she was praying for Bobby Kennedy, she began to smell roses when there were no roses in the room. That was the beginning of her mystical experiences. Uh, over time, those ramped up quite a bit. She began having uh, visions of saints and also frightening visions, um, things like a black eagle uh, flying over New York as a warning that something bad was about to happen. And when she told her parish priest about this, uh, she was sort of given the, the the cold shoulder and kind of just told to to be quiet and not to tell anyone that that this was happening. Uh, and eventually, uh, she was told that uh, Mary would appear to her at her parish church uh, if she prayed. And she spent, uh, according to the story, uh, all, all day and night uh, uh, praying. And eventually, Mary uh, appeared to her and said she would continue to appear there. Um, uh, on Catholic feast days. And there's a long history of this in the Catholic tradition, which is related, but but sort of adjacent to sainthood, which is the phenomenon of Marian seers, of people who experience visions of Mary. Uh, almost always Mary does not appear to people to say, uh, everything is fine, keep doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> almost always Mary appears with some sort of warning um, that can possibly be avoided if people will repent. Uh, and so for a long time, uh, Veronica Luke could be seen in the, the neighborhood um, praying at St. Robert Bellarmine's church, which, by the way, is surrounded on all sides by uh, very nice private homes with uh, nicely manicured lawns. And nobody really uh, listened to her or listened to the, the messages that Mary was giving her, uh, except for maybe a handful of people. And then a group in Canada, uh, known sometimes as the White Berets, uh, found out about Veronica Lucan and kind of adopted her as their Marian seer and began promoting her messages and busing in uh, uh, pilgrims uh, from Canada and really from all over America to where you had up to 2,000 people uh, in this little neighborhood there to watch Veronica Lucan sort of go into a trance and receive messages from Mary. And as you can imagine, the neighbors hated this and it got very contentious and actually violent. And at the height of this, it was known as the Battle of Bayside, and 100 <laughs> police would have to be present to keep the peace between pilgrims who had come to see Veronica Lucan and the homeowners. Uh, and eventually, the vigils were moved to Flushing Meadows Park, where they continued until 1995, uh, when Veronica Lucan died. And so she left behind uh, about six volumes worth of prophecies, because uh, nearly every feast day, Mary would uh, appear to her and give her a message. Those were recorded by her followers. And so to this day, uh, the followers continue to look at those prophecies uh, and and read the newspaper and figure out sort of where we are in this prophetic uh, scenario that uh, uh, Veronica Lucan uh, uh, left behind. Right. It's sort of uh, it's sort of the lesson of Nostradamus, right? If you predict destruction, fire, pestilence, famine, ultimately you're going to be right. Uh, I mean, you, you can't go wrong. It's just kind of a matter of time before these things happen. Uh, our, we're a little pressed for time, and there's some things that I don't want to miss out on. One of them is Polaroid photography, which you wouldn't necessarily associate with most candidates for sainthood or, or mystics in general. But pol- Polaroid pictures, they played like a really big role in all this for a while, right? 
Yeah, they did. It's important to remember this happened in the 70s when sort of for the first time, anybody could just go buy a camera and, and, and take a picture and develop it. Prior to that, uh, photography was you needed to kind of know what you were doing. Uh, and so a lot of people actually didn't know what they were doing. And so there were sort of strange anomalies in the photos, especially if they were shooting photos at nights where people were holding candles and things like this. So they would get these really sort of wild, spectacular uh, photos where there's a statue of Mary and it looks like there are streaks of lightning shooting out of her, her fingers and things like this. And this became a form of almost kind of, you know, divination uh, of Veronica Lucan or somebody else would look at the photos and they would find symbolic meaning uh, in these weird uh, anomalies. And there was one photograph that distinctly said uh, Jacinta 1974 on it. And this could not have been uh, an accident. Uh, and this also became um, uh, a source of great speculation about what this message could could possibly mean. And it still is for modern Bayciders. Although I think a local news photographer uh, reproduced the whole thing, but he put his name in a different year in there just to prove how easy it would be to, to create something like this. So um, Veronica Lucan dies in 1995, as you say, and pretty promptly her followers split into factions. There's a, there's a schism right away. One's headed by her husband, Arthur, um, and, and the other, I think it's called St. Michael's World Apostolate or something. So that's another problem right away is that people don't get along so well. That's right. And if you go to Flushing Meadows Park on a Sunday to this day, you will see uh, two uh, temporary statues of Mary that were brought in and two groups of people saying the rosary and sort of uh, ignoring each other. <laughs> and those are the two factions. And they have an arrangement worked out with the Parks Department about who gets to have uh, a spot where the Vatican Pavilion was in 1964 uh, that they consider to be sacred and who has to sort of uh, go to a traffic island uh, next to it. <laughs> right. At one point, I think one group wanted the other group statue moved to the parking lot of Shea Stadium, which seems like a very unholy place, uh, I guess, unless you're a real Mets fan. Hey, can you explain why she's not going to become a saint? Or why she has So yeah. Veronica Lucan's messages became very laden with conspiracy theories. And one of the things that Mary told her was a, a, a somewhat known conspiracy theory, which was that Pope Paul VI, who signed off on the reforms of Vatican II, uh, was not really the real pope, that there was a KGB agent in the Vatican created through plastic surgery. Uh, and so these reforms were not really uh, uh, valid. Um, I think that is going to really hurt any case for for sainthood, unfortunately, with Veronica Lucan. First, I, I heard that that wasn't true, but all right. Uh, Joseph Laycock, a professor of religious studies at Texas State University. He's the author of The Seer of Bayside, Veronica Lucan, and the Struggle to Define Catholicism, among other books. That's our show. Thanks to everybody who helped, and thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow unless, for some reason, we, we don't show up. Fine. I put my fingers against the glass and bowed my head and prayed.